There is a tradition in uh, many churches to come together on Good Friday, which is the Friday of Easter weekend. Easter Sunday is when we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what we recall on Good Friday is the death of Jesus on the cross. And there is a tradition in many churches to come together for three hours on Good Friday for a, a worship service where they spend a large amount of time thinking about a small amount of words. And those words are the last seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross. And they're actually seven phrases in the tradition we call them the seven words of Jesus. The first of those is in Luke 23 when Jesus says of those who are casting lots for his clothing, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The second, Jesus says to the criminal who's hanging beside him on the cross, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third, he says as he looks down at his mother and the disciple John, and he is sensing that his own life is coming to an end, so he looks at his mom and he says, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. The fourth, echoing the words of Psalm 22, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth, he says, I'm thirsty, as a sponge full of vinegar is lifted to his lips. I'm thirsty, he says. The seventh comes from Luke 23, where as the temple curtain is torn in two, Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the sixth saying, which we skipped, but actually the last thing that Jesus says before his death in the Gospel of John, where we are today in John 19.30, Jesus says with his last words before death, it is finished. It is finished. I recognize that in English, that's three words. In Greek, it's only one word. It'd make an awesome tattoo if you're in the market. It's, it's one really awesome word. It's probably going to be on Brecian's arm next week. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have looked at Jill at that moment. I gotta say, like, what, what, what is Jesus saying with that one word? It is finished. It's finished. One day Jesus' disciples, or this is earlier in the gospel, one day Jesus' disciples ask him if he's hungry, and he gives a typical Jesus response to what seems to be a really straightforward question. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, finish his work. There's that same word, to finish his work. Finish in English just doesn't quite capture what Jesus is saying here. When I think of finished, I think of you know, like you set the timer on the microwave, it dings, and your hot pocket is done. It's finished, right? There's a lot more to it than that. Finished here in this sense means accomplished, perfected, completed totally. It's not as if with his last breath, Jesus is just sighing out, oh no, it's all finished. It's not a sigh of despair. It's in his last moment that he's saying, in this instance, like when you think I'm defeated, I've actually won, right? In this moment of all moments, I have accomplished what the Lord sent me to do. I have perfected it all. It's finished right now. So what is it that's finished in this moment on the cross? Well, we might say so much. Stephanie Howe, one of our children's ministers, did a devotional for our staff this week, and she said something that was so true. 
about this text, reflecting on this, she said, as I read my Old Testament, it's like every character in the Old Testament is pointing toward this moment when Jesus says it's finished. And then she said, as I read my New Testament, it's like every character is pointing back towards this moment. It's finished. I think that's true. It's at this moment, as we've preached about over the last few weeks, that the curse of the garden, when Adam and Eve took of the fruit they weren't supposed to, that that curse is reversed. It's at this moment on the cross when Jesus says it's finished that the seed of Abraham, the child of Abraham, has blessed the whole world as God promised he would. It's at this moment where the son of David, as he's lifted up on that tree, goes to take his place above all others on the throne that was always set out for him. It's at this moment that the substitute for our sins, like the substitute in the Old Testament and the laws of sacrifice, that the substitute has taken our sins upon himself. That's what happens in this moment, right? It's as if, it's as if everything in the Bible and really all the hopes of all humanity for all time, it's as though they are all conspiring towards this one moment when Jesus says, it is finished. It's completed. It's completed. But what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for us? Uh, let me point your attention to the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1, where John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching and this is what he says the work of Jesus is, or what Jesus is going to finish here in John 19.30. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus has finished. He's taken away your sin. He's taken away my sin. As far as the east is from the west, as we heard earlier, he has taken it all away, it's finished. But Fleming Rutledge, she's somebody I read, she said, there is no aspect of Christian faith that's actually harder for us to believe than that. I'm reminded of the young person who came to me this week in tears convinced that their sin couldn't possibly have been taken away. If I only know what they did, it couldn't possibly be taken away. And that's what she says. Rutledge says that when we think about ourselves, when we look at ourselves, when we look at the world around us, right, we are convinced that Christ's work could not possibly be finished, right? That, he, that we have more to do. Surely that we have to add to it, that we have to earn it. Uh, the most memorable movie about war that I've ever seen is Saving Private Ryan. I, mean, I can still recall almost every scene in that movie, vivid. Saving Private Ryan tells the story of Captain Miller and a small squad of men who are, are sent into the European front lines to look for Private James Ryan. And Private Ryan's three brothers have been killed in World War II. He doesn't know this at the time. But because those three brothers have been killed and orders given from superiors on high, the Private Ryan's going to be removed from combat and sent back home to his mother. So Captain Miller and this little squad of men go after Private Ryan, and when they find him, and in rescuing him, Captain Miller is shot. And several of the other men are actually killed, and Captain Miller is shot and dying. But he sees that Private Ryan, who his mission has been to save, that he's going to be safe in this moment. And so in his last breath, Captain Miller draws Ryan to him and he pulls him in close and he says, earn this, earn it. Those are his last words. 
Then the movie jumps forward many, many years later. And Private Ryan's now an old man. He's got kids and grandkids. And with his whole family behind him, he's walking in the Normandy American Cemetery. And he comes across Captain Miller's gravestone. And he falls on his knees when he gets there. And he says, every day, I think about what you said to me on that bridge. And I have tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I have earned a little of what all of you did for me. And then his wife walks up behind him. She puts her hands on his shoulder and he turns to her and he grabs her and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. The uncertainty haunts him. You know, what if it's not finished? What if he hasn't earned it? Any of you ever read the book, The Scarlet Letter? If you did, you probably didn't read it for fun. Yeah. It's probably assigned in English class, right? It's set in 1642. It's the story of Hester Prynne. And she, we find her in this small town of Boston at the time. It's just a little Puritan town at the time. And she's on a scaffolding in the middle of town square. And she's up there for three hours as she's being sentenced for a crime. And her crime is clear to everyone because she is with child. She's pregnant. And she's not married. So her crime is the crime of adultery. So she's sentenced to some time in prison. And when she emerges from prison, she has the child that she's now given birth to. But also on her chest is this scarlet A. Scarlet A embroidered on her chest, A for adultery. And she lives her whole life with that A on her chest. Hey, stop for a second. Can you imagine if we wore our sins on our chests like that? I mean, you wouldn't be able to pay attention to me. You'd be trying to figure out what all my letters meant, right? And so she's a pariah in town. She lives on the outskirts of Boston. And she keeps that letter on her chest her whole life. She just cannot get away from her shame her whole life. In fact, she tries to take the letter off one time. But of all people, it's her daughter that makes it, her put the letter back on her chest. And when she dies, she's laid to rest in this little cemetery. And her gravestone is very simple, just a slate gravestone. But in the middle of the gravestone is a scarlet A. And she can't even escape her shame in death. She can't get away from it. Now, that's a dark story. That's why you didn't read the book for fun, right? But I can't help but think that for many of us, that's our story. You know, even for those of us who have preached and prayed and believed that Jesus has taken away our sins as far as the East is from the West, even for many of us, we cannot let go of our shame. You know, we're caught up and convinced that somehow we have to earn this, that we have to prove our righteousness, that we have to remove our own sins. And so many of us will reach our own deaths and we will scan the hospital room of our family and friends, desperate for one of them to look on us and tell us, you're a good man, you're a good woman, you earned it, you earned it, right? But listen, Jesus does not say with his last breath, earn this. He says, it is finished, It's as if he's saying, listen, I did this, not you, me. No, it's by my wounds that you've been healed, not yours. I myself have borne your sins. I have finished the job that you could not. I have forgiven you. I have declared you righteous, me, not you, and it's finished. 
and it's finished. So why? Why do we still hold on to our shame then? Um, I think it's important here to distinguish between guilt and shame, between guilt and shame. I've got this feature in my car that when I go into reverse, it starts beeping. And the closer I get to objects like another car or a pole or a trash can, it beeps louder and quicker, right? Does anybody else have this in their car? It's letting me know what's behind me that I can't see. I think guilt is like that. It's like a warning system that God gives us to keep us from self-destruction, right? Turn around when you hear these flashing lights or whatever, these sounding sounds. I think that's what guilt is. My friend, a spiritual director of mine, said that guilt is a gift of God, but shame, he said, is the little voice inside that tells you you are unworthy. You're unworthy. And I think there's something to that. I think part of the reason that shame sticks with those of us, even those of us who have been baptized to the risen Lord, Christ Jesus, the reason that shame still sticks with us is because there's a dimension of truth in that. We are unworthy. You know, as sinners before a holy and infinite and glorious God, like how do we dare stand in his presence, right? You know, as sinners before that God, we don't deserve one good thing. You know, as sinners who have set up all of these idols in our lives and in our homes to all these things that aren't God, like SEC football, right? Or HGTV, or my iPad, or my savings account. Okay, we don't deserve one good thing from God. We don't deserve a comfortable home. We don't deserve healthy kids or grandkids. We don't deserve a good job. We don't deserve any of that. What we deserve is hell. What we deserve is punishment. We are unworthy. That's true. And yet, at the cross, when Jesus says it is finished, he is declaring us worthy. When God makes his dwelling among man, he does so because he believes we are worthy. When Jesus the Christ goes about the world healing the sick, preaching to the poor, he does so because he believes that we are worthy. When he dies on the cross and declares it is finished, it is the exclamation point on all of that. He is saying, he is shouting out, you are worthy because of what I have done on this piece of wood and not because of anything you've done. But I think shame lingers still. It still hangs on. And I think it hangs on at that point because that's what the evil one wants. Uh, Let's look at this in Romans 6. This is what Paul has to say about this. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness the jurisdiction of God. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? There's our word, ashamed of. Those things result in death. What's he saying? He's saying sin, your sin, my sin, it never helped anybody, right? And even now, the shame that you feel is a taste of the death you deserve because of your sin. But, Death is not a tool of God. Death is the tool of Satan, who I believe is real, who Jesus believed was real, who Jesus called the prince of this world. That's what Jesus thought. Shame is the power of death, the tool of Satan unleashed in the world of the living. And what Satan does with shame is uses it to try to keep us in bondage to our sin and out of the jurisdiction of God's righteousness. It's like a veil that he puts over our heads so he can draw us where we don't want to go without knowing that we're going there. 
So if that's the experience that you're living in, if you are overcome with shame, what I don't want you to think is, oh goodness, I need to bail myself out. Right? Like I must need to work harder. I must need to do more. I must need to earn this because that's a dead end road that's only gonna lead to more what? Shame. Okay, so let's look at what he says in the next verse, Romans 6, 22. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me break this down. We don't deserve one good thing from God. Our wages, that's what you get when you've earned it. You deserve it. We don't deserve one good thing. Our wages should be death. So, because of that, Every good thing that comes our way must be what? A gift, right? Because we didn't earn it and we couldn't earn it. So it's something that we don't deserve. So every gift that comes our way is a taste of that glorious gift of eternity with Christ Jesus. All of life then becomes a gift and everything, every gift we receive, every good blessing in our life is the spoils uh, in part of this moment on the cross when Jesus says, it is finished, and it is. It's finished. Uh, you know, sometimes, though, people still need to be told to repent, to turn around. You know, Jesus comes preaching, the first thing he says is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and that's what that word means, turn around, head the other direction, repent, change. Sometimes people need to hear that. Sometimes people need to hear that they're being S-T-U-P-I-D, right? We don't use that word in my house, but sometimes I need you to tell me that. Right? Sometimes people need to hear that they're being D-U-M-B. You know, it's like, <laughs> sometimes we need to hear that, right? Okay, but what, I, but what makes it possible for you to turn around, to head in the other direction, is the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. What makes it possible for you to be victorious over all those things to which you were previously enslaved is that Jesus on the cross, when he says he has been finished, it is finished, has vanquished all those things. And God has put all of those powers underneath his feet, as he says in Ephesians 2. So what I want you to hear today is not that you are unworthy and not that you are D-U-M-B. I want you to hear that you are forgiven, that you are blessed, that you are a child of God on whom God looks down and says, ah, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And you can't possibly earn that, so it must be a gift. Right? It must be a gift. 12 years ago, a gunman barricaded himself in a small Amish schoolhouse. You remember this? Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Before the day was over, he had shot and killed five of those children and shot and injured another five before taking his own life. His name was Charlie. Terry Roberts was driving to her son's house when she heard over the radio what had happened. And when she arrived at her son's house, her husband was standing there with a state trooper. And she got out of the car and her husband said, it was Charlie. And then the next thing he said, she'll never forget, he said, I will never be able to face my Amish neighbors again. I'll never be able to face them again. So that week, they have a small graveside service for their son, and of course, they are deeply confused. Now, here's the son that they loved, who's done this terrible thing, caused great harm and sorrow. And so they're just gonna have a private service and bury him quietly. 
During the service, she turns around and she sees from the woods around the graveyard about 40 Amish families walking up out of the trees and surrounding them in a half circle. And she said she looked at them and love just emanated from them. She said love just emanated from them. And one by one, the fathers of all those Amish families walked forward to her and her husband and said, we forgive Charlie and we forgive you too. We forgive Charlie and we forgive you too. And she said their choice to let our lives move forward has been a healing balm for us. One of the little girls that survived, her name was Rosanna, and her injuries were to her head. She's the most severely injured of all the survivors. Today she lives off of a feeding tube. She often has multiple seizures a day. She's paralyzed in a wheelchair. She requires around-the-clock care. Caregivers are with her 24 hours a day. So several years after the accident, Terry asked Rosanna's mother if she could take a caregiving shift for Rosanna. And so now, for years, once a week, Terry, the mother of the shooter, goes and cares for Rosanna, one of his victims. And she bathes her, she brushes her hair, she cleans up after her messes. Not because she wants to earn anything, right? Because she's already been forgiven. And she couldn't have possibly earned that. So, so why is she there with Rosanna? Well, well not, not to earn it, but because she's been given this great gift and she doesn't want to waste it. So listen, you and I have received the greatest of blessings from the one who died on that cross for us. And it is all a gift. So don't waste that gift. You know, I am begging you, do not waste the gift of the Son of God who gave himself on the cross for you, but do not think for a moment that you can earn it, right? It is a gift. It's a gift, and you can't earn it. It's a gift, and it's finished. It's finished. Thanks be to God. Will you stand as we sing together? Precious cornerstone, sure.